0: All right, I'm going to ask uh, Trent if he'll come on up, and uh, if everybody will find their way back to their seats, and Trent is going to read our scripture reading, which is found in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 31 through chapter 14, verse 6.
1: 13th chapter of Luke, starting with verse 31. <clears throat> At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, Herod, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, your children, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then on the Sabbath, when he, went, <clears throat> when he went to dine in the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And they said to him, or he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things.
0: Thank you. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father God, again we thank you for a uh, time together, together and to uh, God to worship you, um, to listen as you speak to us through your word. Uh, we ask that um, as as we open up your scriptures, God, that you would shine the light of the Holy Spirit on this text, that uh, He would speak, um, knowing our hearts perfectly, knowing your heart perfectly, Father, that uh, that He would speak to us and. Show us how we are to understand this passage and teach us um, how it should be applied um, so that we would live in faithfulness um, to Jesus Christ and the calling of the gospel in our lives. God, we know that to understand, to apply, um, to to live out um, your word, um, God, to, to rest in it and to trust in you, um, we need your Spirit working in our lives, and so we pray for it. Uh, f- pray for Him um, to to work uh, to that end, um, God, to draw us close to Yourself, uh, and to uh, help us to understand rightly. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So, one of the um, issues that we come to sometimes when we are studying the Scriptures. Is uh, there's a certain disconnect that happens um, because of the fact that we are modern people, right? Um, we do not live in the agrarian world of of the Bible, and so certainly for for people in our context, there's sometimes things that we kind of um, miss the significance of certain things is not always apparent to us, and and I think that. Um, particularly has a context here in this passage. There's, um, there's a term that we see when we go throughout the Scriptures that connects to this one, and it is the term stiff neck. The Bible at various places um, calls people stiff-necked. Israel is referred to as a stiff-necked people um, in the Old Testament. So that term, though, um, was, in in some ways it's pretty self-explanatory, I think, but that term was originally used of draft animals. Um, it was used of animals that pull heavy loads, particularly of, of oxen. And, and what it meant was you would attach one of these animals, let's say an ox to a plow or to a cart, Um and the way you got them to turn as you went down a, a row in a field or or down a road or a path or whatever is you had this thing called an ox goad. And an ox goad was like a switch um, or a stick that had a little hook at the end, um, a little sharp bar but made of metal or, or something like that. And as you would go down the the, the the field or the road or whatever, if you wanted the the ox to turn one way or the other, you'd take that little thing and tap them on the neck with it. That little poke would be the signal to turn that way. And if you needed them to turn the other way, you tap them on the neck with it from the other side. The problem was is that some oxen were stiff-necked. And what that meant is, for whatever reason, the thickness of their hide or the sensitivity or their stubbornness or whatever, it didn't bother them to be tapped by the ox goad. Um, and it didn't matter how hard you kind of tapped them, they would continue to go the direction that they wanted to go and ignore the command of of the person of their master. And so that is the condition of an animal being stiff-necked, right? His head is stiff. It won't turn to the left or the right to follow the path. Well, God begins to use this as an illustration of the unrepentant stubbornness of his people. And I think that this passage is zooming in on that particular characteristic. Jesus is addressing Israel's rejection of him, particularly Jerusalem's rejection of him. And then more generally, he's just talking about all of our resistance to God, resistance to the gospel, and resistance to repentance. Now, again, I think there's a lot going on in this passage, but that's the part, that's the idea that we are going to center on. And not everything in this passage is part of that. And we could go into, uh, honestly, I could preach two or three different sermons out of this passage and zoom in on smaller pieces of text, but we're, we're going to focus in on, on that idea of, of, of that stubbornness and unrepentance. But let's look again at verse 31. So it says, at that very time, and this first section is one of those ones that I'm, I, I think it's focusing a little more on something else and we'll make some comments about that, but not our main point. At the very time, some Pharisees approached him and said, Go away and leave this place because Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I am casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must go on my journey today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So first off, these Pharisees, I think what's going on here is these are actually Pharisees who are, Friendly to Jesus, right? We we might read this and think this is some sort of trap that the Pharisees are trying to mislead Jesus or alarm him in some way. I don't think that's the case. I think these are probably Pharisees who are actually worried about Jesus' welfare, and they have heard somehow that for, that Herod is 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 mad at Jesus and wants to kill them, uh, wants to kill him. Now, again, we're not going to focus much on this passage right here, but but you see a lot of things in Jesus' response to this. For one, you see the sovereignty of God and Jesus' certainty that he is going to accomplish his mission regardless of the forces that are out there aligned against him. And we see those all through the the Gospels, right? We see that, that there are various people who are intent on stopping Jesus and shutting him up. Herod, the Pharisees, Rome, ultimately Satan is involved in all of those processes. There are people who want Jesus either quieted or killed and yet none of them are capable of achieving that. Jesus has nothing to fear in any of these situations and that is sort of his attitude in here right his 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 uh, uh the tone when he says you tell that fox that I'm going to keep on preaching today and tomorrow and I'm going to do what I came here to do. Jesus knows that he is in complete freedom to walk headlong into his destiny because there's nothing that the world can do to him until he is accomplished until he accomplishes his mission. And so that ultimately, their efforts are futile, and Jesus' mission will be accomplished. That phrase there in the middle is is sort of very enigmatic, right? When he says, on the third day, I achieve my goal. On the third day, I reach my goal. Now, here's the deal. When you read this passage and you look at the time frame it's talking about in the Gospel of Luke and going forward, it's hard to know exactly what Jesus means by that in terms of particular events. Right? It doesn't, it's, it's certainly not, he's not talking about the crucifixion or the resurrection. It doesn't seem like he could even be talking about specifically making it to Jerusalem. It seems like the events that take place between now and that point in the scriptures are, are too many. But here's the deal. What I think is going on is at the very least, whereas the readers or the people in Jesus' time who heard him say that would not have seen any big significance to it, right? Theophilus, who Luke is writing to, we as people who are reading the scriptures 2,000 years later, we hear that significance. That line about on the third day I accomplish my mission has a certain re- resonance to it, right? We know that there is going to be a third day where something significant happens that accomplishes Jesus' purpose, and that is his resurrection. And so, again, the, I, I think Jesus is being sort of cryptic but also prophetic in, in the way he's talking about it, saying there's nothing that will keep me from getting to where I'm supposed to be. There's nothing that is going to be able to keep me from achieving the goal that I have come to do, which is to die and to be resurrected for my people. And so he's, he's going to fulfill his destiny and he's going to do that in the city of destiny. And so that city Jerusalem has played an outsized role in the history of the world. Um, Certainly there are lots of other cities in the history of the world that have played key roles, but man, Jerusalem has some pretty significant things that happen in it throughout history. And Jesus tells us that Jerusalem as a city has a particular, um, what we might call a modus operandi. All right. Um, some of you, I know some of y'all are, are fans of like true crime kind of stuff. You listen to the, the podcasts about the different things and and there was the like the Tiger King thing and all that stuff, these little different phenomenon that have popped up over the last couple of years. Um, and you hear that phrase, modus operandi, a lot of times in, in terms of criminality. And it basically, it's just a Latin phrase that means your mode of operation. It's the way you do things. It's the characteristic traits that are assigned um, to, to a particular, usually a person. But Jesus is saying, Jerusalem has a modus operandi. It has a characteristic way of dealing with things. And we see that in verse 34. What is their way? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. That's how Jerusalem responds to the messengers of God. We read that all through the Old Testament. We see over and over again that the prophets of God are rejected by Israel and Jerusalem in particular. Um, we don't always have the exact story in the in the scriptures of how that plays out, of how the prophets end up dying. Oftentimes that comes to us from, from extra-biblical traditions. But sometimes we get a clear picture in the scriptures themselves of the way Jerusalem responds to the prophets. So, for example, in Matthew's gospel, in the parallel passage to the one we're reading, which is found in Matthew chapter 23, Just before that section, Matthew tells us about Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. And that's a story that we do have direct attesting to in the scriptures in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, when this prophet, he's actually the son of a priest, Zechariah comes and tells the wicked king Joash that he needs to repent. And what is Joash's response? Joash sends his soldiers against, uh, Zechariah and they find him in the temple between the altar, right? And they have him murdered in the temple itself, which was, was a huge sacrilege. The Jewish people have throughout history rejected those who were sent to call them to repentance. The reality is, is we all do that in some ways, but, but Jesus is drawing attention to the stiff neckedness of the nation of Israel. You know, you remember a couple years ago, or at least those of you who were here, when we did the Jacob series, and we talked about how Jacob is later renamed Israel. He becomes, he becomes sort of the embodiment of the nation of Israel as he, um, you know, his progeny are the 12 tribes. But what did Israel mean? The word Israel means the one that wrestles with God. That's what it means, okay? And so, again, this picture is very accurate. God names the nation in a very um, a, a way that is according to the way they act. They are always rejecting and wrestling against His influence in their lives. And again, we all do that in a, in, in a in a way. We see it particularly as Stephen in the New Testament is being martyred, and he even uses that language in verse uh, Acts chapter seven. He says, "You stiff-necked people." Okay, and so again, Stephen is is very blunt in his in his accusations against um, the Jewish people and and Jerusalem in particular. They are stiff-necked, and so a word of rebuke has been offered by Jesus, a chance for repentance has been presented, but yet it goes unheeded in this passage. Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets, and no prophet can come to his end outside of the city of Jerusalem, he says. Why do we respond that way? Why does Israel respond that way? Pride? Self-righteousness? Attempt to protect our own power or influence, to save face in a community? It could be any of those reasons. But here's what's interesting. In the next verse, Jesus says, despite that, despite your rejection of stiff-neckedness, Jesus still comes offering mercy and reconciliation. What does he say? How often have I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her young under her wings, and you were unwilling? Jesus knows what is coming, right? He knows that that the truth, um, that that exactly what he has prophesied is going to happen. He is going to go to Jerusalem, be rejected and be executed um, by the Jewish people, Um, by stiff-necked Israel. They are going to reject him. And and I know what my reaction would have been. If I had known that was going to happen ahead of time, and I knew the history of Israel when it came to the prophets of God, like my reaction would probably not be do unto others as you would have them do unto you. My reaction would be fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Jesus knows what they're going to do. He expects it. But the, And the key is is that he still offers grace to them. And the term that you find in this passage that I wish we would more closely connect with our understanding of God's grace is that term willing. Okay? When you think about God's grace, I want you to attach to that idea in your head the word willing. Because here's what happens. So often we talk about God's grace and what we end up basically saying about it, even if we don't mean to, is license. That God's grace gives us license to live, however. That certainly God doesn't care what we do. That's what it means that he has grace. Or at least that he doesn't care much, right? He's not bothered by it too much. Or that if he is bothered by it, at least he's forgetful uh, of these things. Or if he's not forgetful, at least um, he gets over things real quick or something, right? But I think all of those are misunderstandings. That's not the way God's grace works. It doesn't take seriously concepts like sin or justice, or holiness. That's not what God's grace means. What God's grace does include, though, is willingness. Okay, It is an openness to reconciliation. Jesus is willing to gather the people in and forgive them. He is willing to reconcile. He is willing to receive people back. You know, sort of as a, a thing people say, like you hear people jokingly say all the time, well, you're dead to me. You ever, you ever hear people say that? Like, I say it all the time jokingly. You know, if I say, hey, man, you want to come over to my house and watch this football game? No, I can't. Okay, cool, you're dead to me. Right? I just say it like sillily and just joking. Okay? But here's the deal. The truth is, is that I think it's our default position in life to actually treat people that way when there is conflict. Basically what we do is oftentimes in, in when a relationship is broken or something like that, that is, that sin, that offense, that hurt, that division that happens in a relationship, neither party may be in a position where they say, man, I don't really care about fixing it. I'm not interested in fixing it. I'm fine with you having hurt me and me being closed off against you now. OK, and we see that all. That, I mean, I, I listen to people talk particularly about family relationships, hurts that they have from parents and siblings and, and things down the line. And you sort of they'll say something like, oh, yeah, we don't talk to this family member anymore. Well, why not? Nah, because they're jerks. They did this thing and we're not interested anymore. Well, have you ever tried to reconcile? We're not really interested in reconciling. We've just kind of accepted the fact that they've done their thing and we're doing our thing and we're going about our lives that way. Functionally, they are acting as if that person is what? as if they're dead to us now. But the grace of God means that Jesus, no matter what happens, is willing for there to be reconciliation. Now, there's more to grace than that, but that's certainly a piece of it. Jesus is willing that these things should happen. He is not closed off to the possibility of reconciliation. We've been talking about that very idea in this book we're reading together, Gentle and Lowly. Right? He wants to receive you back in kindness, in gentleness. No grudge, no passive-aggressive payback in Jesus, no long road to trusting you again. Sure, I'll let you come back, but, but it's going to be a long time before I care or love or, or whatever. That's not the picture that we have in the Scriptures. God waits with open arms for his people to return, with a ring and a robe. Right? With the fattened calf ready to be slaughtered to celebrate your return. But the problem is not God's willingness, but our willingness. Jesus says, I wanted to gather you in like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And if we will not come, then there can be no mercy. God is graciously open But if we will not repent, there can be no reconciliation with him. If we persist in our callous, stiff-necked defiance, then there is only judgment that can come for Israel, for Jerusalem, and for us. And that's what he says in verse 35. What does he say? He says, behold, your house is left desolate. The outcome can only be desolation when we are willfully separated from God, living in our own sin unrepentantly, there could only be desolation. The Bible uh, or the dictionary defines desolation as complete emptiness or destruction or in psychological terms, anguished misery and loneliness. And the reality is, is what Jesus is saying here is what actually ends up happening, both physically and spiritually, psychologically. In 70 AD, the Romans come and finally destroy Jerusalem. And it is burned to the ground and the temple is torn down and it is it is it is a place of desolation, right? There's nothing left of, of the city. But life separated from God spiritually is a desolation as well. Anguish, misery, loneliness, disconnection from God. So again, notice when Israel is unrepentant, the grace of God doesn't just get over it, it is open to repentance, and yet the outcome is naturally desolation because how could it be anything else when we are willfully separated from God? Now, here's the deal, though. It's 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 interesting, too, because the grace of God and the mercy of God and the willingness of God even persists, though, past that desolation. There's a consequence, and yet there is still, even in the midst of that desolation, There's still an openness on the part part of God. Because look what Jesus says next. He says, you will not see me again. All right? Essentially kind of saying this opportunity to to turn, you've you've let it go. It's, It's passed you by. But he doesn't say that's the end of it. He says, you will not see me until. There are are many people and many stories, both in the Bible and in our lives and and things that we have heard, of people who have lived years in desolation. Some of us, that's our testimonies. Lives of of rejection, in exile in some way, living in slavery to our sins and and vices in the world, walking in the wilderness symbolically, right? A self-imposed exile because of our stiff-necked rebellion. But even in the midst of that desolation, there's still hope, according to Jesus, because of that little word, until. He says, you won't see me again until when. They will live apart from God, but that even after that, in the midst of the desolation, Christ is still willing, still willing to receive the repentant, still willing to accept the humble." still willing to welcome the ingathered praise of his people. And that's what it says, until when? Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, here's the deal. There's a lot tied up in the passage right there. We could go into a whole other sermon about this little section because I think Jesus is talking. He's not just making generic statements. I think he's talking in times kind of stuff in this passage. I think Jesus is describing the events that we can read about in Romans chapter 11, that there will be at some point in, in in the history of the world that God will have a, he's not done with the Jewish people yet, and that there will be an in-gathering of the Jewish people one day. Some people would say, well, that, that day when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a, is a forced humility, right? The same way that Jesus says one day every knee will bow. But it's equally as possible is that this will be the day that they say it truthfully, right? Sincerely, in faith, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, there will be this day, I think, when there will be an ingathering gathering of the Jewish people. That their current rejection that they live in, okay? Right now, a Jewish person without Jesus Christ is a lost person. They aren't uniquely God's people and have some sort of caveat or exclusion from salvation through Christ. That's not the way it works anymore. But when we read Romans 11, what we get is this picture that says basically that Jesus has allowed the Jewish people to walk away to give an opportunity for the Gentiles to come into the church. And that in a strange way, the Gentiles' faith in coming into the church will be the thing that causes jealousy in the Jews to return back to God and to return or not to return, to come initially to Jesus Christ in the future. And so I think that's, there's stuff going on in this passage that is about that. But again, it's beyond the scope of what we're talking about here today. It's a whole nother thing that's a little nebulous. I think it's, I think he's pointing us in that direction, but, but there's different views on that. And so the question though is, what are they going to choose? What is Israel going to choose? What is Jerusalem going to choose? tender-hearted repentance and acceptance of Jesus Christ, or hard-hearted, stiff-necked rebellion? Well, we find out in 14, 1 through 6. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from edema. And Jesus responded and said to the lawyers and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could offer no reply to this. Now, what's the significance here? Does that story sound familiar to anybody? If you've been here in the last few weeks, you'll realize that not 25 verses ago in chapter 13, we read a story almost identical to it. A story about um, a woman who needed to be healed on the Sabbath. Jesus healed her. The Pharisees were outraged. She can be healed any day of the week. Why is she being healed on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, remember we went through the whole thing. He said, Man, any one of you would have gotten your ox or your son out of a ditch on the Sabbath. That they were hurting. This woman has been suffering under, uh, under her illness for two decades almost. Why would we not take the opportunity on the Sabbath to heal? And so we talked about all those different ideas there, right? That the healing is, uh, that the, the Sabbath is 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 for healing, right? That is a perfect thing to happen on the Sabbath. It shouldn't be considered something that is is kept away from the Sabbath. That human lives and people's plight are more important than trying to follow these these rules that that the world has made up. And we talked about all these issues. Jesus taught the Pharisees the right understanding about these things. And where are we? Like a few days later. And Jesus says, let's try this one more time. And he does the same kind of thing over again. And what is their answer? Their answer is not, well, Jesus, we know the right answer now. Because you taught us to about this just a few short days ago. We understand now that it is right that you would heal this person on the Sabbath. That this person has been suffering from this disease. And, and the idea of the Sabbath itself is obvious that this person would be healed. What do they do? They go, we're not saying anything because we don't like this and we don't agree with it. And we see what you're doing, Jesus. We see that you're putting us in this trap where you've already told us something and you expect us to just line up and follow what you've told us to do. And we're not gonna. So, you know what, man, if they had had a rebuttal somehow, at least then we would have gone okay well maybe they're just not convinced of the teaching in some way right they have a real answer they want to discuss out or something like that um, maybe if if uh if if they had asked questions about it they would say jesus we know what you taught but we're still trying to figure out the clarifications on how all this fits together we want to be faithful to the law but we also understand what you're saying so whatever If there had been some kind of discussion, maybe we would have something. But I think it's key that twice in the passage it says, but they said nothing. They had no answer for Jesus. And the reason is because they know exactly what is being asked of them by this same situation happening again, and yet they are unwilling to concede. They have seen Jesus' power, his care, his mercy, his love twice and yet the rejection persists. That's why this story, I think, is in here. It's kind of odd, right? Because, again, it's the same story, pretty much, as we just did less than a chapter ago. And then it is almost, in some ways, verbatim repeated the situation. Jesus' comments are almost repeated. Why is that the case? Because it is a picture of their rejection. Jesus is saying, the moment's come, Jerusalem, What are you going to do? You have a history of rejecting God's messengers. You have a history of stiff-necked rebellion. And now you have a chance. You have a chance to follow Jesus Christ. What are you going to do? And the answer is, we're going to keep doing the same thing we've always been doing. And then Jesus says, fair enough. Then desolation is what you are asking for. Desolation is what you are inviting into your life. And yet, even in that desolation... God has not abandoned his people. God is still gracious in the midst of desolation. He is still gracious in the midst of us ruining our lives in all kinds of, of, of ways. He is still saying, "There is an I'm willing for you to come back. I'm willing for you to repent and be restored. But they won't do it. I and mean, stubbornness is a funny sin, is it not? Stubbornness is a funny sin. I got some stubbornness in me. Okay. More than a little, like a Scots Irish portion of, of stubbornness just laid in my head and heart. And we talk about the, 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 the colloquialism. Somebody cuts off their nose to spite their face. And that's exactly what stiff neck stubbornness does is that the only person we hurt when we are rebelliously stiff necked against the calling of God in our lives. The only person we hurt is us. The only person we hurt is our own lives and what God has intended for us. And yet we still see God's grace in the midst of it. Okay. And so, so I'll close on that. What I want us to do is man, go to the Lord and, and consider these things in our hearts is because I think probably the case is is this, we probably all have, places in our life sins in our life probably relationships in our life in which we are stiff-necked. we are unwilling to reconcile we are unwilling to forgive we are unwilling to make the effort to do those things again this because you're willing doesn't mean it'll fix everything it's not how this whole process works because there's multiple people involved in these things okay you can be willing and they're unwilling this is still going to cause a problem but But we're not called to fix their lives. We're called to fix our own, our own hearts, right? We're called to deal with those things. And so what I would do is say, go before the Lord and and ask God to speak to you in these things. Is it a sin in your life that you are being stiff necked about? Is it a a broken relationship that you are being stiff necked about? Is it some other area that you know what is right and yet you're just, your stubbornness is keeping you away from it? Go before the Lord and and let's ask that he would speak to us along the lines of this passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we confess to you that it is, as we look at our own hearts and our own lives, God, we, uh, we recognize that, that we have within us that same stiff-necked rebellion. God, we could be called Israel, um, because God, we wrestle with you on any number of things. We sense, uh, your calling and the direction you have in our lives. Um, we, we feel, uh, God, the, the willingness of Jesus Christ to, to turn from our own ways and to turn to him in faith and repentance, and yet um, we are stubborn. God, we are stiff-necked. Uh, we want to follow our own, own path and do our own thing. We want to justify ourselves. God, we are not only like Israel, that we are wrestlers with God, but we are like Jacob in the fact that we are graspers, we are usurpers. Um, we are always seeking in and of ourselves our own justification and, and trying to make ourselves right, um, God, in the eyes of the world. And yet we recognize that there is no righteousness. There is no rightness outside of a relationship with you, that we are called to recognize our sin and plight, to acknowledge it before you and your holiness, to turn from it and to flee to Jesus Christ, who is the only salvation for sinners. God to flee to the righteousness that is imputed to us through His perfect life, to flee to the to the atoning sacrifice that is made available to us in His death. God to free to the new life and and regeneration um, that are ours because of His His resurrection. God to sit at His feet as He is enthroned. Um, God to live our lives in obedience to Him. God, we don't want to do those things in and of ourselves, and yet we we pray that your spirit would work, uh, that it would conform us to the image of Christ, that it would conform us to the image of, of uh, God, what your word has called us to, and then in everything, um, we would not be stiff-necked, but we would be supple, that we would be compliant, God, that we would as you work in our lives, God, that we would be more like clay than we would be like stone or steel. God, that you would shape us and form us in the image of your son. God, we pray these things. We ask these things. We thank you in advance for their their fulfillment in our lives in the name of Jesus. Amen.
2: Please stand and sing the closing song. My soul, my Savior, God, to me, how great Thou art, how great
0: Thou art. Amen. Well, uh hope you have a good week. Um, be careful. Um, it's uh, it's people getting sick out there. And so um, uh, just just pay attention to those things and take a little maybe extra precaution um, uh, as you're going throughout your week. And um, continue to pray for those who um, are uh, um, sick and, and um, ill. I would particularly ask for your prayers for a, a friend of several of ours um, named Josh Livingston. Josh is his father is a member of uh, Mother Church. Um, he is a dear um, brother in the faith. He has worked with students uh, and children at at uh, Mother Church for years. He was there when I was a little kid. He was taking us on camping trips and and working with the the Royal Ambassadors um, group at, at the church. Um, his son. Josh, who is roughly my age, is in the hospital right now with COVID. Uh, he's on a vent. Um, and so pr- pretty serious case. Um, and so uh, just be in prayer for Josh, if you would. Um, uh, sweet family and and somebody very close to both, both our church. Um, Josh serves in children's ministry at First Baptist Alcoa. Um, he is the children's director at First Baptist Alcoa. And so um, just that you would be particularly in prayer for him. Um, Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.